We're driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search match with Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform with over 350 million global monthly visitors, according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Ditch the busy work. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. Leveraging over 140 million qualifications and preferences every day, Indeed's matching engine is constantly learning from your preferences, so the more you use Indeed, the better it gets. Join more than 3.5 million businesses worldwide that use Indeed to hire great talent fast. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash BlueWire. Just go to Indeed.com slash BlueWire right now and support our show by saying that you heard about Indeed on this podcast. That's Indeed.com slash BlueWire. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. This podcast episode is brought to you by Coors Light. These days, everything is go, go, go. It's nonstop hustle all the time. Work, friends, family expect you to be on 24-7. Well, sometimes you just need to reach for a Coors Light because it's made to chill. Coors Light is cold lagered, cold filtered, and cold packaged. It's as crisp and refreshing as the Colorado Rockies. It is literally made to chill. Coors Light is the one I choose when I need to unwind. So when you want to hit reset, reach for the beer that's made to chill. Get Coors Light in the new look delivered straight to your door with Drizzly or Instacart. Celebrate responsibly. Coors Brewing Company, Golden, Colorado. We're here. I wish I could keep this feeling. I wish I could keep this feeling. What's up, everybody, and welcome to another episode of the Corner Podcast. John Jones is an idiot. Let's just start it off with that. <laughs> Get away from our normal intro. It's all about John Jones. If you don't know, I'm Kel Dansby. And it's Andreas Hill. And we were both there when John Jones lost his damn mind again. I swear, if you play our episode from last year at this time, we said the exact same damn thing. I think I was in Puerto Rico, and I said John Jones is an idiot. And it comes through again. Again, John. I, I don't understand how to even put it in words, him even messing up. It's like, you know, your rope is super short anyway. You've done all these things. You really have to keep your nose clean, and you can't do anything to jeopardize that. He was about to cash in on this fight. Brock Lesnar added to the card. was about to bless his pockets. For all purposes, everyone's picking him and beat DC and become uh, undisputed champion again, and he couldn't last. Three days away from that, and he couldn't do it. So it's, it's incredibly poetic how this thing turned out. Conor McGregor was originally to fight at UFC 200, got pulled for not showing up to a press conference. We replaced him with John Jones, Daniel Cormier, too. And Daniel Cormier, he's fine. John Jones can't seem to stay off of whatever it is he's on. And then with that being said, today we had Conor McGregor fly in and pretty much say, all you have to do is ask. He would have fought. But going on this John Jones thing, like, there's a lot that's going on, and we don't have a lot of time to talk about it. Um, Alton Sterling and, uh, and uh, we had uh, Philandro Castile, you know, the, these, these incidents, these shootings that happened. So my mind's been everywhere. So all that to say, I don't give a fuck about John Jones. And if he never comes back, fine with me. Because that much talent being cast to the wayside because you can't, you can't do the right thing, 
I don't have time to care for you. You're a privileged guy who's had every opportunity in the world to succeed. Got a chance to headline the biggest card in UFC history, and you couldn't stay off of whatever it is that you're on. We'll find out soon enough what it is, but I can't even look at his tears. I'm like, get the fuck out of here, John. You fucked up everything. Yeah, at that point, it's like you're a grown-ass man, John. Like, what am I supposed to tell you? You're a grown-ass man, and you need babysitters? That was one thing I took from DC's press conference last night. He's like, the guy has handlers and life coaches and people who drive him everywhere, and you still fuck up? Like, this is ridiculous at this point. It's like the kid in class that got, like, three teachers and then still gets in trouble and sent to the principal's office. Like, sooner or later, you know what? You can give somebody as much help as you want. John has to take care of John. And John's not going to do it. If he didn't get the message, he missed one year already. People just bypass that he was gone for 10 months. Like, missing two more years, you're missing three years out of the prime of your career. Like, you're never going to be the same. And at this point, I'm wondering, like, I don't even know if he's the greatest of all time now. And if we wrap our head around it, in three years, two guys, we would have just thought, hands down, would be considered the greatest fighters of all time mixed martial artists of all time have fallen from grace both popped on a test regardless if they say they didn't do it or whatever it may be both failed tests i mean john hasn't lost but for all purposes he lost in life the cocaine test everything else anderson silva got beat twice it's just like it's like when all your heroes are gone man it's like when someone tells you pro wrestling is fake it's just is not good for the sport in this point, because now you have no one to look up to. Who's the best fighter of all time now? You can't even pick one. Well, John Jones is a walking 30 for 30 at this point. Like this, is, like I said, it, I don't think he needs to come back. He is a cautionary tale. He is a guy who has all the talent in the world and never was my role model. I've, I've said it a million times in the show. I've never been a big fan of John Jones, the individual, but the talent was unparalleled. And we saw a guy that just couldn't be beat. And the only person that could beat him was himself. And he went out there and he blew it, essentially. So it changes everything. I mean, you, you hold it, you run into the biggest weekend, and we're getting ready. You know, we're writing our stories. John Jones versus Cormier, the most heated rivalry in the UFC. And the guy, you know, three days before, it's like everything, the, the house basically fell on Dana White's head. He sat there and watched a car that he put together, managed to stay healthy, without, with the exception of Derek Brunson being the only person that got hurt. The entire card stayed intact until 72 hours before your biggest night. This is horrible timing, but again, it's almost poetic because John Jones, it just proves that he shouldn't be responsible for headlining cards anymore. He's just not that guy. And looking at injuries and just bad luck for the UFC, I believe we had six pay-per-views so far this year, numbered pay-per-views. One has had the same main event for the title. That's it. Everyone else has fallen off. It's been a late replacement. You know, Connor took the L because of it. We saw Rockhold take the L because of it. Hopefully, DC doesn't continue the trend and take the L off of taking a late uh, addition opponent. But that's very possible at this point. Championship main event fights are getting messed up. It's not undercard, fight pass prelims. Those seem to be fine right now. It's your biggest stars and the biggest marquee fights. The reason people buy pay-per-views are falling off at a staggering pace, and that has to change. That's, that's something that can't happen. You can't have your best fights just continue to just be just wrecked fight week. Um, I'm done with John Jones, though. I'm tired of talking about John Jones. What's next for DC? As of right now, probably by the time you guys listen to this, the fight will be here. You'll know who DC is going to fight. Um, but when we're recording this, we don't know yet. And there's reports and all that servicing. We won't even touch on that. Who should he have fought 
at UFC 200. I know your opinion, and I think you're going to go far left with this answer, but I want to hear what you're going to say. Daniel Cormier shouldn't fight. Pay the man, and he shouldn't fight. It, this is this does him no favors. I know he's in shape. I know he's done everything that he has to do. But Dana's like, he gets paid well. I'm not going to pay him. No, you pay that man. You pay him what you're going to pay John Jones. Because the money was already there to be paid for in the first place. Don't get a replacement because nobody's ready. It's, un, it's unfair. And for Cormier to fight anybody but John Jones, because this is not just a fight. This is deeply, deeply personal. If you put him in there with like an Ilya Latifi or like uh, a Michael Bisping, like it's not the same fight. So I don't want to see him fight anybody. I want to see Cormier go home, recognize himself as a champion, which is going to be hard to digest because you never could beat the guy who beat you because he can't stay off of the dope or whatever it is. But I don't want to see him fight. I, it's, it's just too short a time to prepare for a fight. And it's just not – we saw what happened to Conor McGregor. Same thing happened to Cormier, and I don't want to see it. I, on the other hand, you know, wrote an article about five people DC should fight. And one person, when I was going through and I had to do some quick research because the turnaround time on these are crazy right now. But I was doing quick research and going through the rankings and something a lot of people probably might you know, frown on uh, just because the guy's coming off of a disastrous loss. But right now I want to see him fight Ryan Bader. Just because Bader was calling for it, he was talking trash, all this stuff, and emotionally DC can get up to fight Ryan Bader. If you want to give him someone where his heart will come right back into it and it's not a disappointment, let him wreck Ryan Bader. I don't care that he just got knocked out by Rumble. Everyone gets knocked out by Rumble. So what? Take the L. Ryan Bader is out there somewhere. He's probably the only light heavyweight right now, I think, in the top 10 without a scheduled fight. Feed him to DC. DC will get right back up. Ryan Bader will talk trash in these last 48 hours. That'll make DC be like, yeah, I'm coming for you, sucker. And then drop him on his head. Take the easy paycheck. That easy. At least we get a title fight. I get what you're saying. I mean, Bader did piss off Cormier, but I just don't think Cormier's mind is even on Bader. But if you had to pick anybody, you'd probably pick him. I just don't know if he's even on weight. You know what I'm saying? It's like it's 48 hours. You know, you're asking a guy to fight, to come in basically off his couch. This isn't even Chad Mendes' territory. Like, this is worse than all of that. This is you have to really roll somebody in and be like, hey, come on, come get beat up real quick and get a check. I don't even know how much you pay him. Like, if you got to fly somebody out, they got to still fly, get settled, do something. So I get what you're saying. But we got a special guest today. Um, for the, those that are listening, we have Josh Gross, the author of Ali versus Inoki. So we'll be talking to him in a little bit. Uh, what else we got to talk about before we bring him in? Before he comes on, we actually just got to make our official predictions. That's the last thing. Uh, official predictions for the UFC 200 card. Uh, at this point, the card is ever-changing. So who knows what it will end up like on fight night, but we have to go with what's there now. And like we've said all week, the card is stacked. Um, top to bottom, we've done great interviews. You've interviewed, I believe, everyone on this card by now. So you have more insight to the fights probably than anyone. And it's so tough, so tough to, you know, even choose the winner of some of these fights because literally I haven't seen a bad fight on this card yet. Fight pass, prelims, all this stuff. Top to bottom, the card is stacked. And what, you want to work from the bottom up? Let's go uh, Jim Miller versus Takanori Gomi. Picking Jim Miller. Uh, Takanori Gomi is a fireball kid, a legend, but I don't think he really has it anymore. Um, Miller needs this. He's lost back-to-back fights. Um, He seems incensed to win, but it could be a really fun fight. On the low, this could be a very sneaky good fight because Gomi's got a lot to prove also. He hasn't looked exceptionally well since he arrived at the UFC. 
And uh, on the biggest card, he was really laid back yesterday, which is weird. I was talking to him, and he just didn't seem like he gave a shit about anything. So maybe that's just his demeanor. But he needs this. But I'm, I'm picking Jim Miller. I'm going with Jim Miller as well. Um, you know, like for all the reasons you said. Gomi is going to put on an exciting fight. He's going to throw some hands. But in the end, I don't think he has it anymore. And it's a fight to keep Jim Miller in the promotion at this point. You lose three in a row, you're kind of cut. At least getting one win buys him another two fights. Um, they don't want to do that to Jim Miller. He's still an exciting fighter. It's just he's not an elite fighter anymore. So, you know, have him take a step back and fight some people he can probably beat. Um, let's go Gegard Musasi versus Diego Santos. Musasi, they were talking about bumping him up to the co-main event at this point in the title picture. And we're talking about him now, second to last fight. Um, I'm going to give him the nod here, though. I pick Musasi to win, and I pick him to get the finish. Yeah, Santos is going to come at him. Gayard Musasi, former Strike Force champion, an excellent kickboxer. Um, he, he's another guy who feels like he should be higher ranked, since he's in, especially now that he's a middleweight, and he's got something to prove. And um, if he doesn't get the Cormier fight, which I, I felt like they were leaning towards getting him in the Cormier fight, I think he washes Santos in about a couple of rounds. Um, he shows his medal, he does his thing, and he gets his name entered in the middleweight sweepstakes. Yeah, I mean, he damn near won it but by default here a second ago. So uh, next fight, Diego Sanchez versus Joe, Joe Lawson. You had a great interview with Diego the other day at uh, Ultimate or the fight like media day thing. There's so many damn things. Uh, Ultimate media day for UFC 200. Uh, he just wouldn't, you know, shut up. He cut multiple promos. He's so happy. He's loose, excited to fight. And to me, that's going to translate. You can never count Diego out of any fight. But this weekend, it seems like he's just carefree, man. He just loves to fight. He's here to have fun. There's no pressure from the event on him. I'm picking Diego to win. Picking Joe Lozon. <laughs> as much as I like Diego, the man's been in a lot of wars. He's always believed in himself. And, you know, one of the things I talked to him about was being inspired by Michael Bisping to make another run. He went to the, uh, the Cerebrum Health Center to make sure his brain was okay because he's been in a lot of wars. He's been in a lot of wars. And I, he's going to want one with Joe Lozon, and Lozon's going to give him one. But I think Lozon's a little bit more seasoned in the ground to take this fight. But it, this should be a hell of a fight. Everybody expecting fight night. Everybody's expecting blood. I think we're going to get blood courtesy Diego Sanchez. He's going to try to control the tempo, and he'll end up losing a close split decision. Diego's crazy, man. I ain't counting him out. I'm telling you that much. Never count Diego out. Uh, Fox Sports 1 prelim card kicked off by Super Sage Northcutt. Uh, everything is awesome, man. Enrique Marin, a lot of people don't know about him. To me, it seems like... You know, a fight to get Sage back on his feet, get him back into his division. You don't want that kid taking back-to-back -back losses, and there's no need. I believe him when he says he was sick and the strep throat really got to him. And once again, another late-notice fight with an opponent. You jump up 15 pounds, plus being sick. It's not meant to be in combat sports, especially you don't do that to a 19-year-old kid. You Let alone, you know what, you want to do it to McGregor. He's dumb enough to do it. Okay. Cowboy Cerrone is a grown-ass man. Let him do it. A 19-year-old kid who kind of feels the pressure. Like, he loves day. He loves adults. He's not going to say no to an adult still at this point. He's like, yes, sir. That's the only thing he knows how to say. And he got rushed into that fight. I'm picking him to finish this fight and come back with an impressive victory. Uh, saves Northcutt by a savage knockout. I think this is going to be brutal. I think through all the smiles and through all the everything is awesome, there is a man who is pissed off on the inside that he lost his fight. And Super Saves Northcutt, being the kid that he is, has, has, wants to prove something. And athletically, he's just a better fighter than a lot of people. He's just, as an athlete, we haven't seen the best of Sage Northcutt. Savage knockout, something real brutal, might get him a knockout of the night bonus. Next up, TJ Dillashaw 
Rafael Sunsau, which is crazy low on the card, by the way. Um, TJ has something to prove, and he's wanting the title fight next, and I think he can go out and get it with this fight if he wants. I talked to him. He's not entertaining all the stupid Team Alpha Male BS. He has his eyes set on Cruz. He thinks he won that fight. He thinks he can get him in a rematch. Um, I'm picking Dillashaw to win this fight. And it's only three rounds. The guys used to go in five like a robot. I, I think he gets this one. It's a tough fight. We haven't seen Rafael Asensio in a, a year and a half. Asensio was on, I believe, a six-fight winning streak. And he beat Dillashaw last time they fought. But clearly, Dillashaw is a completely different fighter. And for that reason, for the reasons that Dillashaw has made great strides in his game, and I don't know if ring rust is going to be a real thing to Asensio, picking Dillashaw to win this. He's used to five-round fights. He's going to have a motor for a three-round fight, and he's going to be at it for three straight rounds. Uh, picking him to win a decision, I don't think he'll knock him out. But you never know. Dillashaw is a bad dude. Yeah, and a Sunsau, he I mean, he could come back and he could be on his RDA and just run through people again. You just never know because uh, we obviously haven't seen him. I think this is num number one contender's fight, though. No matter what, like, I, hands down, if anything's a clear number one contender's fight, this is it. Um, next, we have Big Rig, Johnny Hendricks versus Kelvin Gastelum. You know what? I pick against Kelvin Gastelum a lot, and Gastelum always proves me wrong. Uh, I'm going to do it again. I think Big Rig comes in. I think he's motivated. I think he figures it out. Um, Wonder Boy is just incredible, so I don't expect you know that type of finish again. But I, I think Big Rig kind of recaptures some of what made him great before, and he goes on a nice second run. I would love to see him fight Robbie again. Yeah, I think Hendricks wins this fight. Um, as, as good as Gaslin's been, he's always had weight issues. I don't know how it'll work. But Big Rig lost to a man who I don't think anybody could beat right now. So, and I've said Stephen Wonderboy times it can't be beat in this division. But Johnny Hendricks can beat just about everybody else in this division. So I'd love to see him and Lawler fight. I think Gastelum will get knocked out. I think, I think Hendricks is going to hit him and knock him out. Next up, we have Kat Singano versus Juliana Pena in the main event of the FS1 card. Um, both looked incredible during media day, though. Just stunning women. They really are. Like, whoever wins this fight, hopefully they get pushed into title contention, and UFC can push them way further than that. I know uh, the UFC often has tunnel vision and can only – you know, handle like four or five stars at one time. Um, but if they get the shot, especially Juliana Pena, just speaks so well. She has tons of character, and she looks incredible. So, um, But the fight itself, I think Kat's going to win it. So, I mean, that's not going to help the Juliana Pena hype train. But I, I think Kat's going to win it. Kat, Ronda Rousey had a, just air about her. So everyone who lost to her, you just take it with a grain of salt. Now come through. The division's wide open. Misha's a great champion, but she's far from invincible. And uh, I think Kat's on a mission. Kat is the lost woman in this division. Kat beat Misha Tate. Everybody forgets that. Nobody talks about it. Everybody talks about Misha and Ronda and Misha and Hollywood. Everybody forgets that Kat Zagano is the one who beat Misha Tate. Kat's going to win this fight. I like Juliana Pena, but Kat's technique and her jujitsu and her wrestling and her strength is going to be the difference maker. Juliana's going to come and fight a hell of a fight. This could be fight of the night. These two women could put on a fight of the night if Kat lets it go that far. But, I, I, you know, talking to Kat, she just seems like she's refreshed. Her battery's refreshed. We're having the time off. She seems super motivated. Feels like the Ronda Rousey loss cleared her head because now she doesn't have to worry about being undefeated anymore. And, uh, yeah, Kat, Kat by some kind of finish – Maybe a submission. Main card time. Uh, we're only predicting four fights because we don't know what DC is going to do at this time. We have Cain Velasquez versus Travis Brown. I'll make this you know, quick and easy. Cain Velasquez, first round TKO. I think he's back. When Cain is healthy, there is none better in the heavyweight division. And I feel that he's truly healthy. Just seeing him, 
this is the best I've seen Kane look since I've been covering the sport. I mean, I've been in it like three and a half years, four years. I never saw a prime Kane. To me, this guy looks like prime Kane. And I'm just like, man, this is, he has it. And Travis Brown is in for a whirlwind. So, yeah, sorry to Mr. Rousey. Yeah, Kane Velasquez by finish. I think Kane's lost two fights. One, he was injured against Junior Dos Santos. And the second one, he didn't, he didn't acclimate to the altitude when he fought Fabricio Verdun. When he's on point, he can't be beat in the heavyweight division. Nobody has a motor like him. Travis Brown's going to try to knock him out in the first round. But I've been looking at his boxing lately, and it's real suspect. And you got somebody like, yeah, exactly. You know who he's working with. You got somebody like Kane with that kind of a motor who's going to wrestle you and take you down and just pound on you for three rounds. I'm picking Kane Velasquez by a finish, entering himself right back into the heavyweight division sweepstakes as the number one contender for the title. Next up, Jose Aldo. Jose Aldo Jr. versus Frankie Edgar. Um, if you guys listen to the show, you know my stance on Frankie doesn't do it for me. Frankie is an amazing fighter, though. Um, I've been watching a ton of film on Frankie this week, and it just it amazes me what the guy can do. Multiple weight classes is great. You know, if I don't see superstar, it's not for me to see. Michael Bisping's a champion. What the hell do I know? Like, some people don't have a superstar quality. They win a title, and it comes out of them. Frankie is a champion at heart, first and foremost, and I think he beats Aldo. I, I don't see the same Aldo. When they faced off at the media day, Aldo looked him in the eyes. When I did an article on Aldo before the Connor fight, he had never looked anyone in the eyes his entire career. Connor faced him. He looked Connor in the eyes. He got knocked out. This is a different Jose Aldo. We may never see WEC Aldo again. This guy's just hanging around a little bit too long. Frankie's taking him out. Wait, knockout? Knockout. Third. I'll give him third round. This is my toughest fight to pick. Because whenever somebody gets knocked down in 13 seconds, you don't necessarily know what it does to their psyche. And Jose Aldo Jr. before this fight was the best, one of the best fighters pound found in the world. Didn't lose for 10 years. Um, and he beat Frankie before. So he has that over him. But I'm going to pick Frankie Edgar too. And I have a really hard time doing this because Jose could come in there like a, a tornado and knock him out in the first round. But I just think being knocked down in 13 seconds does something to you. And momentum's a big thing in MMA. Someone pick Frankie. I think I think it's going to go to a decision, um, and I think there's there's the slight adjustments that Frankie will make a little bit more wrestling, take him down, work on his gas tank in the later rounds will be the difference. It'll be close, but I think it'll be a 48-47 for Frankie Edgar. Now that's probably a smarter pick than a knockout, but I, I don't like the looking people in the eyes, Aldo. Like it just it doesn't shout confidence, and Frankie right now has as much confidence as anyone in any division. To me, Frankie, honest to God, believes he can beat Conor McGregor, and it's not even close. So I'm taking Frankie in this one. Um, Misha Tate versus Amanda Nunez. Um, I'm taking Misha. And I think Misha loses to several other women in the division. She's just not losing to Amanda. As good as Amanda may be, her last fight wasn't that impressive to me. I was very shocked that she got the immediate title fight. I was shocked that she asked for it in the press conference after uh, the home fight. So I was like, okay, whatever. Um, in a five rounds, I give it to Misha. She just has too much fight in her. Amanda hasn't shown great conditioning in the last couple fights. So against somebody like Misha Tate, the, the game plan here is to just take her down and, you know, just ground her out. Um, Amanda's a great finisher. She's a hard puncher. But I don't see her beat Misha in this fight at all. Uh, Misha retains her title, and she gets to look forward to who I think it should be Kat Zingano next. I don't, I don't want to see Misha fighting. Like, forget Holly Holm. Casagano's next. Let Holly Holm get the next fight. Maybe she fights Ronda when she comes out, and you hold her for that if Ronda ever comes back. But Misha should win this fight pretty handily and secure a hold as the best woman today, right now. 
it's a joke that Holly Holm doesn't have this fight this weekend because she was two minutes away from going four rounds to one against Misha because she was winning that fifth as well. Four rounds to one, retaining the title, and Misha went for the craziest takedown I've ever seen. She did like some weird leg whip alligator Ninja Turtle shit and got uh, Holly down and won the belt. It was just, you know, her magical fantasy story culminating, kind of like Bisping in my mind. That does not happen again. And uh, if Holly doesn't get the next shot, then it's just a fluke. Sorry, Kat, but, you know, you took some time off. You got to wait in line. Um, Lesnar versus Hunt, the new main event. I'm going to go against the grain, and I'm going to pick Brock Lesnar by decision. Um, I think Mark Hunt gets tired if he doesn't knock someone out in the first. It's a grueling fight. Uh, I've seen him go five, though. I mean, you know, the him versus Bigfoot Silva fight was incredible, but you don't do that when you're on the ground. And Brock is a big-ass guy to have laying on top of you. And if Mark Hunt doesn't land the one shot, I know Brock doesn't like getting punched in the face, but it takes one shot for Mark Hunt to win. I don't think he lands it. I think Brock uh, just grinds him out. I picked Mark Hunt from day one, and then I saw them stand next to each other. And I said, fuck this. I'm picking Brock Lesnar. And it's nothing against Mark Hunt. But I just, like, I looked at Brock Lesnar, and I was like, holy shit. I forgot how big Brock Lesnar is. And people was like, oh, well, he hasn't fought in five years. But he's he's wrestling. I know that's not the same thing, but you got to be conditioned. Like you, you still have to have something. And I don't think you lose that wrestling ability. And if Mark is – you're exactly right. If Mark Hunt can't touch him, and every, every round is going to start standing, which is my fear. But if Brock Lesnar can take this fight to the mat, he could finish Mark Hunt. Because I don't know if Mark Hunt is going to know what to do with a man that size on him because those elbows and punches come really quick. It's just going to – I just wonder if it's going to take Brock a few minutes to get in his groove. Any hesitation, he'll get knocked out. But I changed my mind looking at those two yesterday. I was like, I'm just going to pick Lesnar on the safe side. I can't pick against this giant. Yeah, I mean, Hunt's 12 and 10, so it is what it is. Um, now, though, we're going to have to switch pace because Josh Gross is here to talk with us. Amazing guest author, UFC uh, – well, I guess he still writes for the UFC, um, about the UFC, but – We'll talk about everything, how it went down and hit his MMA career. A lot of people think Ariel Hawani was, like, the first one to get banned. There's a long list of uh, journalists that's been down that road with the UFC, and we're lucky enough to have someone here to give their firsthand experience to talk about that. Josh Gross, uh, adding author to the resume, which is great. Uh, amazing book. Ali versus Anoki. Andres has been talking about this book forever now. Like, he does... Uh, all of his shows, the book is on his little bar. He doesn't drink, but he reads the book. So he's getting the most use out of his set right now in his household. How did it come about, and what was your inspiration for writing the book? Yeah, thank you for all that. Thank you guys for having me in here. Um, the inspiration for writing the book uh, comes in a lot. I had a chance to travel to Japan 12 times to cover Pride, and I was around a lot of fighters and a lot of pro wrestling people, and I was more trending towards the fight side. That's always where my interest was. One of the fights was near the Tokyo Dome, um, and I happened to walk into this shop, and they had this kind of amazing collection of these random tchotchkes and different fight-related material. And I saw this poster for Muhammad Ali versus Antonio Inoki. It was a closed-circuit poster for Riverside, California. I'm an L.A. guy, so it kind of struck my attention. I bring a lot of souvenirs home from Japan, but it's the only one I did, and it's hanging in my office. And I told myself, someday, you know, I'm, I'm going to write a book about that. So that was, that was the real motivation behind that. Other than that, it was, I'd wanted to write a book for a long time. It was finding the right topic, and I felt that that would be the perfect one. 
the challenges of writing this book. Uh, we talked before you just going on air. So start to finish 13 months. Um, I didn't do the bulk of the interviews until after I signed my deal. So I started interviewing people and doing all the transcribing during that period. I actually wrote it in three and a half months. I actually didn't do anything else in my life but write for three and a half months. I got rid of my TV and everything else. So, um, yeah, I don't know why I did it that way. I kind of felt like I just wanted to grind. And it was an amazing experience. We were talking earlier about all the information that's in there. I mean, the Internet I don't know what it's like to write a book without the internet. It's my first title. Uh, but you jump into this sort of line of history and it leads you to a whole bunch of other places. And I kind of went with it. At certain points I had to press pause because I had to get back to the original purpose of the book. But um, it was fun to dive into all that sort of stuff. How did writing the book kind of change your perception of Ali? Because obviously you enter in and he's known as the greatest ever, but his story can go so many different directions and you've got a true look into an area a lot of people don't even know about. How did it change your perception on who Ali was? You know, I think it added to my understanding of who he was. Um, obviously anybody who calls themselves the greatest and anybody who accomplished what he did is an incredible competitor. Um, and to step into this venue eight months after the thrill in Manila, I think just spoke to his competitive drive. Um, it was an interesting period in Ali's life. I wrote about two periods in his life, um, before Liston, before he became champion, especially in 1962 when he was in Los Angeles, and then after the thrill in Manila from 75 on to the end of his career. And there was two totally different guys in a lot of ways. And what I think I did was really illuminate where his brashness came from, where his sort of pro wrestling bravado came from. And a lot of that was in the 1962 period in Los Angeles. So I think I learned a lot about that. Of course, we knew the stories about Gorgeous George and the things that he was really interested in. But, I mean, his connection to Freddie Blassie was a really iconic wrestling character, went with Ali in 1976 to Tokyo. Yeah, that was fun to learn about and really explore. I think that's an area of Ali's life where he didn't get enough credit for and didn't, you know, people treated this as a farce, but it's much more than that. Everyone believes that, you know, just Ali as a person is transcendent over time. Like, he's, we'll never see another one. Is there anyone today, or is it even a possibility for someone to have that same connection to, like, the pro wrestling world and bring out that same enthusiasm in a culture like Ali did? I don't know. Celebrity is so different now. Um, it's so much more easily attained and less important. You know, a guy like Ali had worldwide fame because he deserved it and owned it. He created his persona he won these amazing fights he was uh, captivating in so many different ways so I think just the, the re reality behind what makes someone a celebrity now versus when Ali did it is totally different I don't think it means nearly as much you know someone to have a social conscious we hear celebrities now chiming in on these social issues but it's in one ear out the other social media doesn't mean anything I mean he took real stands real principled stands over the course of his life that a lot of people don't um, today at least and I think you know people remember him for that and in that sense um, no I think we lived in the we're lucky to have lived in the age of Ali whether we knew him as an old man but heard the stories and heard the people around him speaking about him or you're old enough to remember seeing him fight live we lived in the age of Ali and we should be grateful for that because I don't think there's anybody ever gonna be like him are you surprised nobody did this wrote this book yet because this, this story, I mean, it, it crosses over so many things that we kind of talked about is boxing, MMA, pro wrestling. It's like the godfather of it all to see them all come together. And nobody really has touched on it except for you. I think, um, I think people have touched on it in limited ways. The boxing people hated it. 
they, they really hated it. They thought it was a farce, and they didn't like all these association with it. They didn't like the heavyweight champion in the world doing all this stuff. So at the time, they totally dismissed it, and they didn't want anything to do it. Even in Thomas Hauser's seminal biography of Ali, um, it calls it a footnote and kind of gives it a, a couple pages, right? And that was the extent of it. Um, I'm not surprised because uh, I think, you know, in the annals of everything that Ali accomplished, you know, really, it's, it's not that important if we're talking about like the grand scheme of things but I think it's a legacy that he doesn't get enough credit for I think this history of boxer versus grappler is really important you know we see throughout time that that's something that you know really great fighters strove to sort of challenge themselves Jack Dempsey and Ed Strangler Lewis in the 1920s that was a real thing a lot of newspaper ink was spilled over that uh, never happened but Ali knew that history and he wanted to do it so um no I'm I don't know. I put the book together in a way that I thought would be a really good story. And I knew the match itself wasn't compelling enough just to write a book on the match. But the people around the match, I mean, there's books and books about the people around the match. The characters are incredible. And I thought to piece that together, to really tell that in a cohesive way that also painted this picture of where modern combat sports are, especially MMA, which is a hybrid on the business end of pro wrestling and on the sport end of, you know, other catch wrestling and boxing. Um, where did that come from? And I tried to answer that in the book. With that being said, like now you, you see the UFC, you see the direction, you see the growth that a company like that can have. Do you think that at that time they had any knowledge like, man, we're creating a phenomenon? Like we're setting the blueprint for something in 50 years that's going to be special, 40 years that's going to be truly special? I think most people didn't have any idea. Ali... Uh, according to Gene Kilroy, who's one of his longtime advisors and friends, Ali said that he felt like he was opening the door to this, that he knew that by his participation, a lot more people would be exposed to mixed-style fights. And even though it was a farce and a dud, it did open a generation to this idea. Martial artists all over the world suddenly said, well, what is this? Let's kick this around a little bit. Even in um, the inspiration for the modern-day UFC, all the hang-ups and the bad moments and the crazy rules about this fight in 1976, there was inspiration for them there. They said, we don't want the UFC to be this way. So they drew upon different types of inspirations. But I think at the time, most fans didn't know whether it was a real fight or a pro wrestling match. A lot of people didn't have any sense what the rules were. There wasn't a great understanding that this thing might lead to a new sport, a new modern-day combat sport. And that really has flourished and really has grown. I think 40 years later we can look back and you know draw those conclusions and I did that but I think probably most people didn't have a sense of what was coming. That's the funny thing the fact that the rules and it's so interesting that nobody you didn't know if it was real or fake. Anything surprised you in your research that you didn't know before that shocked you as you were putting this thing together that you know many people would not have knowledge of? Well, I think a lot of people didn't have much knowledge of anything in, in the whole, as far as the whole event went. I mean, it was like one of these shrouded in mysteries. I call it the forgotten fight for a reason, which is crazy to have. You know, I was kind of amazed that Ali, Muhammad Ali participated in something at the height of his fame. So he may not have been the best boxer at that point, right? He was already in his decline. But this was the height of his worldwide fame. People forgot this fight, or a lot of people have no idea it ever happened. So to me, that was really interesting. And exploring that. Um, behind the scenes, there was lots of stories and lots of things. G uh, Vince McMahon and the McMahon family was involved in this story. They put together the American Closed Circuit. Uh, and there's this wild story that Vince McMahon tells in, in Freddie Blassie's biography. So I guess it was known in that way, but I, didn't, I wasn't aware of it, that they were conspiring with the referee Gene LaBelle 
to cut Ali, like in a pro wrestling style, but he wasn't going to be aware of it. And apparently Vince McMahon's dad, Vince McMahon Sr., said, what the hell are you doing? This is Muhammad Ali. Get the hell back to the United States. And there was a lot of those little moments, a lot of those little behind-the-scenes moments. Um, you know, so I, I don't know that there's one thing that jumped out to me. I, I, was, I talked earlier about his competitiveness, and I was really astounded by people talking about him who were so close to him to how competitive Muhammad Ali was because you kind of get this caricature right and you see this man and but you, you think about it until he makes sense I mean he picked fights and he picked the biggest fights that he could and they meant a lot to him and he wasn't going to give up no matter who the opponent was so it was, it was fun to see it in sort of this mixed style context uh, and he said he was nervous he didn't say that about a lot of boxing fights but he said he was nervous about this one I believed him so you know it was that, that was there was a lot of things to go over and sort of learn about you know before writing the book, were you a fan of pro wrestling? Like, are you now a fan of pro wrestling? Like, just that aspect and knowing, like, the McMahons had a hand in it. And, you know, just years later, he runs, you know, the wrestling industry now. And to see how something so far go, you still had their hand. That lineage had their hand in something so monumental. Uh, do you still follow wrestling? And does it shock you that the McMahons kind of go that far back? Yeah, it's, you know, it's interesting. They called it mixed martial arts. Literally in 1976, they were calling it mixed martial arts, so they deserve credit for that. You know, there's always been a lot of discussion about who deserves that. I think the McMahon family and the WWF at the time deserves a lot of credit for that. No, to answer your question, I'm not a, I'm not a pro wrestling fan. Um, I'm not going to turn on Raw and watch. I'm not going to watch the pay-per-views. I'm not going to watch WrestleMania. And for a long time, I was really dismissive of pro wrestling as something that was really stupid, vapid and not worth my time. And in that way, I, I missed the boat because I was dismissive of it in an MMA context. And I talked to people like Dave Meltzer, and they would say, well, yeah, MMA's pro wrestling. I'm like, no, MMA's not pro wrestling. What are you talking about? Um, but I realize now, and I respect the pro wrestling business immensely now after doing this book and understanding really the roots of what pro wrestling was. I mean, there's, in America, at the turn of the century, catch wrestling may have been the most popular sport in the, in the country. Really, there was no baseball, there was no NBA. I mean, really, in terms of drawing out crowds, maybe horse racing, but I don't think even horse racing at that point. So, you know, I didn't have a great sense of that history. Um, and to understand that a real sport became this pro wrestling business, which was showmanship and entertainment, and now we're talking about sports entertainment. And this night, you know, had a lot in terms of the manifestation of that. You could see Vince McMahon's ambitions sort of playing out in this night. Um, that was all really fun to learn about and study. But no, I'm, it's still not enough to get me to watch Raw, man. It's still not enough to get me to All right, so let's, let's talk about what got you here in the first place. You know, a lot of people know you as an MMA journalist. Um, I don't want it to, you know, there may be some people that are like, well, who is Josh Gross? Can you just give a little bit of background on yourself, you know, before the book, you know, your career in MMA? Sure. Uh, well, I've been covering mixed martial arts as a journalist for 16 years. So I got in. My first story I wrote was April 2000 when uh, the California State Athletic Commission passed the rules for what became the unified rules for mixed martial arts. Um, you know, this was during its darkest period. This was like the full effect of John McCain and human cockfighting, and this only way you could really get it was on a small satellite carriers. You couldn't get it on cable. This was underground, but I lived in Southern California. I was born and raised in LA. So, in a lot of ways, the sport survived in Southern California. And it was, I could go to events. I had to go off and venture and really make an effort of it. I had to drive three hours to go to a Native American reservation to watch fights on a baseball diamond at midnight. But the cards like with Jeremy Horn and John Marsh and all these names that we know who became superstars, that's what I grew up around as far as MMA. 
And then I had a great chance, right time, right place, you know, a lot of hard work to go to Japan and see Pride and see Zufa come in and take over the UFC. And from 2001 to 2005, I covered the UFC as close as anybody. Um, people, a lot of know, people, people know a lot about sort of my history with the UFC. I haven't had access to the UFC in over 10 years. For better or for worse, I made it work. Sports Illustrated hired me in 2008. ESPN hired me in 2010. I'm working for The Guardian now. So none of that stopped me. But, you know, I'm a journalist who happens to cover mixed martial arts in part because I loved mixed martial arts first. So I combined two things I was really passionate about. And um, I'm still really grateful for that. And I love the experience of covering fights and being around fights. And um, I, I enjoyed it a lot. And I don't think I could have written this book if I didn't have the passion for the sport that I do. With that being your background, how did it make you feel when you see something like the Ariel Hawani, you know, situation and it's like 10 years removed from your situation? It's just like, man, it's happening again. Like nothing's changed. No, well, it's a pattern. And, um, you know, it's I'm not the only one. Ariel's not the only one. There's been other. I mean, they threw out all of MMA fighting that night with Esther Lynn and, and, and EKC. And, you know, I, I thought it was insane. Um, obviously, from understanding from my pers personal perspective, but, like, to do that during an event to a guy like Ariel, who's got an enormous audience. And I think the UFC didn't understand. Or they were just being so rash, which is, like, maybe a combination of both. But um, the backlash was well-deserved, and I'm glad to see the media business and the MMA side coming together in a lot of ways. And I think it'll provoke some change, and hopefully we move forward and we grow as a business. Um, I, just hope, I just hope these moments... Whether Zufa stays around or they sell to a new ownership group, you know, it's time for the sport to grow up. These kind of moments make them look really petty and small and diminish what they're trying so hard to do. They may not see it that way. They may think, what the hell's the difference? But a lot of people see it and question what their motivations are and really what they're about. And I think these are fights that they don't have to pick. It doesn't make sense for them in the long run. It's hard to argue with their success, but I think they sometimes pick battles where they don't need to, and the media is often where they hone in on. And I, I, I don't think it's necessary. I'd love to have access. I think I should, and I think other people should as well. But um, it hasn't, hasn't stopped me from doing my job. I was about to say, I mean, it seems like the issue has been, and I mean, I've experienced it, you've experienced it, everybody's been trying to control the media. And you don't see other sports doing it like the UFC has done it. it, has, it has it basically hindered their growth? Because they are big, but there's still a big audience that still isn't, watching the UFC regularly? I don't think it's hindered their growth. I mean, they're about to sell perhaps for over $4 billion. It's quite a good return. You know, they're, they're doing all right. Um, I do think it's perhaps slowed their growth or slowed their acceptance in some quarters. Um, but my situation is something a lot of people don't know about. And I kind of almost take pride in that at this point, that people don't realize that I'm writing from my couch most of the time, and yet my fight reports feel like I'm in the arena and I give a lot of flavor. And, you know, I, I'd love to be there. I should be there. I think my coverage would benefit from it. But I, I don't know that my moment or Loretta Hunt's moment or even this aerial thing has done much. At the end of the day, most people do not care about media or their issues. Most people want to watch the fights and be fans. And while it's nice to have support, uh, I think at the end of the day, most people are going to shrug their shoulders and move on. Uh, and I think the UFC has relied on that. And the UFC also knows that they draw an audience that's very attractive to people who have media companies and the media company people want to make money and they'll click on the stories and they know that someone who's been working for Sports Illustrated and ESPN maybe still will get hired by those people but you know the UFC can still operate with those companies and keep that guy away 
So in the end of the day, I, I, think, uh, I think it doesn't make much difference to them. I think they should get past it. Uh, it's well past time they do. But um, hard to say that it slowed their growth, man. Hard to say that. Being on the outside of that situation looking in, if the company is sold and, you know, the doors are opened up to everyone who's been banned, there's great journalists that are banned. Would you come back? Would you just, you know, bury the hatchet be like, okay, they're gone. Let me, I'm ready to start again. There's no hatchet to bury on my side, man. I'm, I cover them the same whether I have access or not. And I, that's the only thing I could do. Because if I start coming off as vindictive and having a, a, an ax to grind, then I'm lost. I, I lost. So, um, Yes, I certainly hope so. I've applied for media access periodically throughout Zufa's time. Um, I, I think I'm applying for The Guardian for 202. So we'll see what happens. I'm not expecting anything to change, but I'm still trying. And I hope, I hope 100%. Look, when you're talking about the types of people that are potentially going to be involved with the UFC, um, you know, NFL people, things like that, you would hope that they see the wisdom of moving beyond these things. And I have a hard time buying that any of the coverage I've ever done or any of the reporting I've ever done has hurt the UFC's bottom line. It's only raised questions sometimes about their business or maybe it hasn't made them look so good. But I think it's all been valid and fair. And you know what? If it wasn't, they probably would have tried to sue me or do other things. And they haven't quite done that yet. So I just want to ask you one question about, you know, when the, when the situation did happen, without getting too particular about it, did you consider moving on to something else at first? Did you figure out, because as a journalist, you know, good journalists can write about just about anything. Did you think, you know, maybe I need to move on to another sport or were you like, I'm dedicated, I'm going to sit here and I'm going to do it for my couch? Um, look, when they threw us all out, they threw us all out after Ultimate Fighter 1 and after UFC 54, okay? So UFC 55 is when I didn't get access, everybody in the MMA media space didn't get access. So it wasn't about me directly at that time. Um, two weeks after they threw us all out, Dana White flew me out to Las Vegas and tried to hire me. He tried to hire me and offer me a job to run UFC.com. And for several reasons, I passed. Bottom line is I didn't think I could do journalism there. But beyond that, it felt odd to me to being sitting in office and he's offering me money and he just threw me out two weeks ago and the rest of us out. I, I didn't understand that. I'm like, I'm good enough to hire, but I'm not good enough to have access. That's weird. So, yeah, at the time I said I passed and he said I would regret it. And you don't know what people mean by that necessarily when they say those things. And I've reported on stuff you know, that they didn't like. But no, I continue to cover because the UFC, like I always said, wasn't mixed martial arts. And certainly back then it was a different space. You know, Japan was enormously popular and pride was huge. And you had lots of companies and lots of events. And California, where I was, was full of fights. I didn't, I didn't cover mixed martial arts to be close to Zufa or close to the UFC or because it was cool. I covered it because to me, I was a young fledgling reporter who had access to these amazing space and these people and the fights really spoke to me I mean they I connect with the fights so no I never considered doing anything different um, I have written about other things along the way but no I'm I'm a, I'm a combat sports reporter I mean that's how I see myself what do you think about this whole John Jones incident um you know it's it's what everyone's talking about uh he's had several chances and they seem to extend more chances to him than anyone else uh how do you feel about the situation do you feel this is the end of john jones that he didn't take anything that was banned and you know you understand you let the process play out but it doesn't look good for him I think in hindsight, it's kind of amazing that the UFC would trust him with this main event spot on the biggest card that they've ever done. 
And, you know, Dana White may have believed that John turned a corner. Um, but it's still a lot of faith in a guy who's already let you down a couple big times. I, I think there's um, quite a sense of irony, really, that, you know, John Jones bailed on UFC 151. They put him on 152. He fought Vitor Belfort, a story that I reported on for Deadspin last year. Belfort's testosterone levels were really questionable, really high. And the UFC didn't do anything about that and let him fight. And that, that kind of spurned on the USADA era because, you know, there was a lot of sort of whispering about that story before it came out, and you really saw the UFC moving to change their position. And, you know, and now Jones gets popped by USADA. So it's, it's sort of some weird, like, karmic balance going on. And I, and I wonder about John and what he's – he was so emotional today and weirdly emotional, and he didn't really answer a lot of the questions. Um, it didn't – it wasn't a good look for him. I, I don't know. He's his own worst enemy, and he's always been his own worst enemy, and that's something that Greg Jackson told me years ago before he was champion. John has to handle himself, and then everything will take care of itself. And he's gotten in the way a lot. He's gotten in the way a lot. So, look, if he's out for two years, then I'm kind of like John Jones – you don't see him. He's not there. And I was dismissive of Daniel Cormier as light heavyweight champion. But now, you know, a champion shows up and competes and fights. And if Jones can't do that, then he's not, he shouldn't be regarded as champion. Um, it's a wild scene. I Three days before UFC 200, and we have to deal with this. I can't imagine what Dana White was feeling and what the UFC was feeling. Joe Silva's reaction when he got off the airplane, right? I mean, it's, this is a hardcore business. You have to be a gunslinger to make this work. And you really wonder about the people potentially coming in to take control of the UFC. You've got to be nimble and you've got to be willing to, you know, deal with big, big things on the fly. And they've done such a great job of that. You know, John Jones has not done such a great job of a lot of stuff. And you really wonder. It's a waste of talent. It could be, I mean, cautionary tale. Are you kidding? That was my first thought was Dana's probably just losing his mind. It just seeing numbers just fall off the wayside because how do you try to sell a company even if they're not and you know someone's trying to buy your company and then you're selling them these huge stars and you just kick one off of a card and then you replace him with a guy who flunks a test and gets kicked off you know three days before the card and now the biggest star arguably in your sport is on loan from Vince McMahon in WWE because you don't have Ronda Rousey Connors you know up in the air for 202 he's he hasn't had an injury in a while, but you just never know. It's supposed to be your big summer, and you don't have any big stars outside of a, a pro wrestler. It's kind of scary. And I, I thought, like, Dana White's face just showed that. Like, man, my last star. Like, this is the last guy I was trying to sell, and he messed up again. So, Josh, before we get you out of here, I want to, um, again, thank you for writing this book. As a big Ali fan myself, I was so thankful to see it because I've pretty much read every piece of literature on Ali, and I've always wondered about this story. So, Make sure you let everybody know where to get your book. I know you can get it on Amazon. You're here at the Fight Shop in Vegas. You're doing a signing tomorrow, so anybody that's in Vegas, definitely come through. But where can everybody find you? Uh, they can find the book in bookstores. Um, it's on Amazon and Barnes and & Noble. And, you know, if you go into a bookstore they don't have it, please ask for it. Um, but uh, they can find me on Twitter. The only social media I have is Twitter. It's at Y-A-Y underscore Y-E at Y-A-Y-E. Um, People look at me funny sometimes when I give that Twitter handle, but there's a story there. Uh, the story well, my friends have called me JG for years. It's my initials. And I happened to be in Vegas with some buddies, and one guy probably had a little bit too much to drink. And JG became Ye Ye. So, like I said, there's a story. But, uh, um, yeah, you know what? I was Josh Gross ESPN. I left ESPN. I'm like, I got to come up with something, and I kind of went with that. But, you know, people seem to like it. Um, 
But other than that, you know, uh, I really appreciate your words, and a lot of the media has been really great, and the reviews have been positive, and having people read the book now is exciting. It's different than just writing a story. It's different than writing a story. And that authorship, you know, having that tag is a – I don't think I understood or respected it so much, but, it, you know, it's, it's a tag you earn. And um, I'm, I'm glad that I can call myself an author, and I, I feel like I did a really nice job with the first effort. So hopefully there will be others we'll see, but uh, people got to go out and buy this one, so please do that. Thanks for coming through. Thanks for taking time out, especially on this busy weekend. Uh, everyone else, stay tuned. This is Kel Dansby. And this is Andreas Hale. And we are the co-hosts of the Corner Podcast, and we want to let you guys know that on July 8th at 6 p.m., the Las Vegas Fight Shop, home of the Corner Podcast, will be hosting MMA legend Randy Couture for a meet and greet and signing for everyone here for UFC 200 weekend. And then on July 9th, man, Nate Diaz will be in the building from noon to 2 p.m. at the fight shop, signing all your autographs, giving you the middle singing, and probably giving you a stock and slap. So make sure you come through the Las Vegas fight shop at the Miracle Mile Shops at Planet Hollywood. Again, that's July 9th, noon to 2 p.m. from Nate Diaz. And July 8th at the Las Vegas Fight Shop for Randy Couture. Make sure you're there. Make sure you get your autographs. Make sure you check out everything going on UFC 200 weekend. And make sure you come and watch us record that Wednesday at the Fight Shop, 4 p.m. to 6 p.m. We'll have a guest for you guys, a lot of surprises. It's a good MMA talk. All right, welcome back from the break. We told you guys that we have more to talk about, and we're going to just fly through some of the biggest events of the week. WWE really didn't do shit this week, so we're not talking about WWE. Um, before we get to some pro wrestling, I want to talk to you about Joe Budden versus Drake. Rap beef, what do you think? What do you think about the disses? Uh, lyrically, do you think Drake's going to respond? How do we sum this up in, in the grand scheme of a year where really rap beefs are back? So Joe Budden just kind of used Drake as a punching bag. Um, both of the songs are good in terms of diss songs. The problem is if Drake doesn't respond, they kind of fall on deaf ears. And I don't know if, Drake, if Joe Budden can do enough to poke the bear to make Drake come out and do something. So I enjoyed them. I thought they were funny. I thought they were well thought out. I thought there was, there was quintessential Joe Budden songs. But the best thing Drake can do is ignore him. That's the best thing he can do. I don't want to see him ignore him. I want to see a battle. But he needs to ignore him. Yeah, lyrically, Drake's not holding up very well in that competition. So Drake, the best thing he can do is just be quiet, like just chill. Um, but, you know, we have a combat sports podcast for a reason. So we got to do it. In the blue corner, standing 5'11", 185 pounds, 35 years old, Joe Mouse Budden from Jersey City has a history of drugs. Keep that in mind. In the red corner. Standing six foot tall, 175 pounds, and I'm being generous. I'm adding the beard weight in there. 29 years old, Aubrey. Six God Graham. Obviously from Toronto, you know, child actor. Hold that against him as well. Who do you got? If they were fighting in the octagon, UFC 200, we need a main event. This would be a great main event, by the way. Who do you got? Who's winning in an actual fight, Joe Budden or Drake? Oh, Drake has been yoked up lately. He's definitely been hitting the gym. But Jersey City Joey might beat that ass. 
I just never looked at Drake as somebody who could ever fight. Like him versus Chris Brown, you remember that? The bottle throwing incident? If you got a knuckle up and throw him, I'm just going to pick Joe Budden. I feel like he's beaten up some people in his past recently. And he wrestled. I feel like Joe wrestles people a lot when he's bored. I could be wrong. I don't think Drake does the same thing. I don't want to say Drake is dainty, but he's dainty. I mean, Drake does a lot of dancing with Odell Beckham Jr. Uh, that can't be good. That's not good fight prep. Like, if you have a fight cam, I don't want Odell Beckham Jr. being my training partner. Uh, Joe Budden's gone both ways. He got slapped by a member of the Wu-Tang. But then also he supposedly uh, lumped up uh, Kanye's Ghost Rider uh, in, on a reality show on VH1. So it could go either way with Joe Budden, but at least he has some experience recently. Ring Rust is real, and I'll take Joey to beat Aubrey any day of the week in a fist fight. It'll be close. And you know what? Tricky, I'll give you by submission because it does look like Joe just randomly just tumbles with people. I'm not sure how good his hand games are. I'll give him guillotine choke if they had to go at it. Um, now let's talk about crazy wrestling and something that took over our timelines. I don't watch Impact Wrestling. We watch a lot of different types of wrestling. Impact is not one of them. But we had to check out Matt Hardy versus Jeff Hardy. This, that was, okay. <laughs> Yo, to see this, like, Brother Nero, like, I have not watched any Impact Wrestling, so I had no idea what was going on. And I saw, like, a trailer or something. I think I texted you guys in the group chat, and I was like, what the fuck is this? And then I watched it, and it was like, for those of you who haven't watched this, go to YouTube. It's on Impact site now. I think the full match is there. It is, like, a choreographed wrestling match with, like, props and, like, a roaming candle and, like, characters. And, like, Matt Hardy plays a violin looking like Edward Scissorhands. And Jeff Hardy has a dual personality. It was the worst best thing I've ever watched on television. It should win an award for being the worst best. And I don't even know how you do that, but you should give it to him. Yeah, Matt Hardy's, like, full Sweeney Todd. Like, he has the weird accent. He's, he's Johnny Depp and Sweeney Todd. He, he plays music. Um, there's some character named Willow who, for some reason, everyone plays. And Willow, if you guys have ever watched, and I'm going to show my age on this one, if you've ever seen Sky High on the Disney Channel, it's a superhero movie. There's, like, a lackey in Sky High who wears that same stupid mask and has that high voice. Willow is a straight copycat off of the green dude from Sky High. If you don't know what I'm talking about, it's probably because you're above 30 years old. This isn't for you. If you're under 30 and you were a child that grew up in the 90s, just watching great Disney Channel movies, you got what I'm saying. That's who Willow's a ripoff of. It is weird. Like It's something that I feel like the Wyatts can kind of pull off like genuinely and it wouldn't be stupid. But right there, it was just ridiculous. Like Jeff Hardy's making crop circles. Matt Hardy's just at one point. It's just on a lawnmower with no hands, just like wrecking shit. Like, ah, I mess up your crop circles. <laughs> Yo, it starts, it starts off he's in class with like a kid. Oh, my God. There's so many weird moments to the fight. Like, even before they start fighting. And then the finish is just ridiculous. Like, Jeff Hardy's going for the twist of fate. And then somehow Matt, like, just lights the shit on fire. And then Jeff falls and Matt pins him. And it just no, there's no explanation. At the end. Best worst match ever because there's no rhyme. Like, there's in the extended cut because there's an extended cut. Like, there's a drone that's involved and just Hardy's chasing a drone, I think, on, like, a dirt bike. Like, I don't even know what this is anymore. Like, I'm watching it, and I'm like, yo, what the fuck am I watching? But I guess if you're Impact, you got to do something to get people involved. And you got us talking. That's the, the, I mean, if you could do this every week, you've got us talking. 
And but you can't do it every week. That was ridiculous. I'm getting a brother Nero shirt. I'm, I'm just letting you know. Um, it's going down. I saw that there for sale, and I'm going to get one. So if you see me on this podcast in two weeks, I will be rocking one of those shirts. I'm doing it for the culture. Um, yeah, we're we're gonna talk to CWC next week. Um, WWE did their thing. They did, had bracketology. So next week when it actually starts up, we'll talk about that. Before we go though, we've been touching on the NBA every time that we've been on the show. KD jumped ship. He went to Golden State. He went to the enemy. And people are giving him a pass. The vast majority of people are giving him a pass. I'm like, yo, what happened to the same people who was killing Braun for going to Miami who had just got bounced from the playoffs? The first, you know, first round exit the year before. No, KD went to the champion runner-ups that beat him after a 3-1 lead. And he was like, oh, all right, Westbrook, I'm out. What up, Bay Area? You know what? The hell was going home. I'm chasing a ring. Two-year deal. He's like, you know what? If I don't like out here, I'm going to go somewhere else. I might join Braun. Who knows? I got to say it once again. I hate this move. And I, people are like, get yours, Kevin. Get yours. I'm competitive. I don't like losing, and I'm going to do what I can to not lose. But my problem with this is they went 73-9, and nine, dude. The Warriors went 73-9. and nine. Like, what do they need you for? Anything less than 74-8 and eight is a failure, in my opinion. I know what people are going to say, what is Kevin Durant? Look, he could have went anywhere, anywhere, and I would have been like, all right. He could have went to the Clippers, and I would be like, well, they've never won. But, dude, Golden State's won. They don't even need you. So, look. In the spirit of competitiveness, I hate it. I'm all for free agents doing what they want to do and finding the best opportunities for them. But I, I like people to be competitive and have balance. Why am I watching the, the league next year? To watch, to just let's just fast forward to the end when Golden State plays Cleveland in the NBA Finals again. And if LeBron could beat that team, he's still not Jordan, but it'll be close. He's not six and zero in six MVPs. I'm just letting you know, Jordan lost in the playoffs, just not in the finals. So I don't know how you hold that against LeBron. Like, Jordan lost for a long period of time in the playoffs. So he just didn't make the finals to do so. If the Pistons were in the Western Conference, he would have took ass whoopings in the finals. So, you know what? The 6-0 is faulty off rip. And if Braun beats that team next year, he's the greatest of all time. Because Jordan never beat a team like that in the NBA Finals. I don't care. You bring up Magic's Lakers. They were washed when Jordan beat them. Magic was on his way out. Magic might have had the hiv. FYI. So, LeBron beats them with, what, four of the top 15 players in the NBA at this point? Easily. Like, hands down, four of the top 15. LeBron wills his team against them. He got Kevin Love. Kevin Love, the best thing he did all year was wear a Stone Cold t-shirt. You ask somebody, yo, what Kevin Love do this year? Oh, shit, Austin 316, smoking skull belt. That's it, right? So, if he beats them, he's the greatest all time. That's all we got for this week. We're running out of time because we have shit to do because it's UFC 200 week and we're against the clock. Make sure you guys check us out on social media at the corner LSN. I'm at Kel Dansby on everything. He's at Andreas Hell on everything. Make sure you check us out. Until next week, we're gone. Peace. Oh
Spring is in the air at Littleton Coin Company, and we want to help you brighten your collection. Visit us at littletoncoin.com all month long to enjoy 15% off your purchase. With a wide selection of coins, paper money, supplies, and more, Littleton Coin Company has something for every collector's taste. Use promo code SPRING at littletoncoin.com for 15% off your purchase all month long. Restrictions apply. Littleton Coin Company. Serving collectors since 1945.